Okay, this morning, um, first thing I'm going to apologise, I'm full of cold. And uh, the first service got like the full sound effects of a cold. I don't think you guys are going to get the same sound effects, I think we're okay. Um, but I am a little bit croaky, and if you can't hear me, just shout abuse at me, uh, and I'll get the hint, and I'll speak up. I'll put the microphone closer if I need to. So we are, if you've been here for more than a couple of weeks, you will probably know that we are in the middle of uh, what we're calling the year of biblical literacy. Um, and this is something since, that we've been on since the beginning of this year. And really the reason that we're doing it is because there's a, a concern that as the church, that's the church capital C, not just our church, that actually we're, we're becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. So we want to tackle that this year, and we're doing that in a number of ways. Some people are doing, have got an app called Read Scripture and are doing daily readings. Um, other people are just doing their own reading plans. I'm one of those people because actually the four or five chapters that you do with the Read Scripture app, when they say it takes 20 minutes, it takes me about an hour because I'm a slow reader. And by the time I get to the end of the hour, I can no longer remember what happened at the beginning of the hour. So I figured actually I'm probably better just doing a chapter a day and making progress that way. And that will take me about three years rather than one year. And I'm okay with that. Um, although I, got, I, was, I was a little bit put to shame when I said, I think you guys are in Leviticus to those who said they're in Read Scripture. And they said they were in Judges. I felt completely inadequate because I'm still in the beginning of Exodus somewhere. So, um, but it's okay. Jesus loves us all. Um, Others of us, we're looking at the year of biblical literacy within a small group setting, and we're doing it on Sundays with these teaching series that I'll explain in a moment. Um, and for those of us who are really keen to really grab hold of the Bible and get the most out of it, we're looking at um, educational elements of our understanding of the Bible. So that might be looking at doing Vineyard Institute, which is kind of an online um, series. It's, it's not certified as such, but it is certified. I'm going to overcomplicate things if I keep talking. Uh, but you can do that. Talk to Paul. He'll say it much better than me uh, and really sell it to you. Um, it's good. Uh, when we started this year with a, a teaching series called The Good Book, which really looked at what is the Bible, why do we trust it, why do we have it, and why, why does it look like it looks? And today we're starting the next series, which we're calling The Story of God. And this is looking at the meta-narrative of the Bible. Meta-narrative is possibly one of those words that someone at the front says, and you might nod, and inside you're thinking, no, not a clue, not a clue. Um, What that means is the Bible is full of narratives, full of stories, and we're looking at the meta-narrative, which is the overarching story of all of Scripture. The one big story, which, roughly speaking, you can put put out like this, is creation... Fall, uh, Jesus or redemption, uh, and then restoration of all things, which we sometimes refer to as renewal. And this is our focus for the next four weeks. Um, and many of us, I think, were brought up in church, certainly, to, to, to think that the Bible begins at Genesis 3 and ends at Revelation 20. Now, what I mean by that is we're brought up with this understanding that the story of the Bible is something along the lines of we did bad, we sinned, uh, and Jesus has to come and save us. And that's kind of it. That's the story. But actually, that's a really flat, 
quite a negative look at the story because the story actually is all about God and his story and our place in that story. And it goes something along the lines of this, that actually his creation is good and we are his good partners in that creation. But we sinned and we did go bad. But immediately, immediately God starts on an intentional mission to restore us back to relationship with him. And in Jesus that's fulfilled and now we play our part in waiting for the restoration of all things. And there's elements of that that we do now and there's elements that we wait for. And knowing the whole story of the Bible gives much more context, particularly to the things that just don't necessarily make sense on their own. And it gives us understanding as to why the Bible is saying what it's saying at any particular point in the scripture. And it gives us, importantly, it gives us context. I don't know if you've ever walked in midway through a conversation and immediately wished you hadn't. Have any of you ever experienced that? Where you walk in and the first line you hear is, and then I said you should really put your shirt back on. Since you think, what have I just walked into? And usually, not always, usually there's context to statements like that. But actually the same is true of the Bible, because actually if we don't have context, sometimes we can skew the meaning of the Bible in a way that's really unhealthy. So a classic, so I was brought up Pentecostal, this is classic for me. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says, standing on the roof of a car park with a cape. You don't want to take it too literally all the time. Because there's times where taking it out of context is dangerous. So let's start the story at the beginning. This morning we're looking at good creation. So we're going to, I'm just going to read here Genesis 1 verses 1 to 5 and then verses 26 to 31 of the same chapter. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, uh, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the sky, all the, sorry, all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, um, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was morning and there was evening. The sixth day. And one of the, the, out of this scripture, I'm going to pull three quick movements that summarize what's going on in one sense. So the first is this that it's a different kind of story, and that it answers a different set of questions, and that it invites, invites us to a different way to live. 
So let's start with this is a different kind of story. Now, in, for us in the Western world, the idea that creation is good maybe isn't completely alien, um, partly because um, our colourful, shall I say, Christian heritage means that these things are kind of a norm to our society even now. Um, but actually, when Genesis first came about, this idea that creation was good was completely radical, completely new. Um, so to look at, just quickly to look at an alternative creation story that was around about just before, around the same time as Genesis. So this is Enuma Elish. It's an ancient Babylonian creation story. And there's some similarities. They both start with this kind of watery chaos. Um, we, I think we often read that actually the earth was formless and void in the Bible. And all that stuff, and we think it's just like space, maybe you imagine. It's completely empty and there's nothing. And actually that's not necessarily what is intended. Perhaps what is intended is more along the lines of this kind of chaotic, unordered, watery madness. And God comes and makes order of it. And that happens in both these stories. There is order brought to the chaos. And then there's six scenes of creation, and humans are created in scene six. That's the same for both stories. And then it starts to get a little bit weird. Um, in Umaradish, uh, we realise that actually the earth was formed from the dismembered parts of warring gods. Happy, happy creation, huh? And actually, humans are just an afterthought because as, as the outcome of this war is that some of the gods, um, are, they're clearly losing their battle. They turn around to a god called Marduk and they, um, they basically say, hey, look, we don't want to do this. We can't be your servants forever. So humans are created from the blood and guts that are left over uh, to serve the gods forever. And that's your lot in life. You're just a slave of God. Actually, Genesis is really quite different because God takes this watery chaos and he forms it, but he doesn't form it out of war. He forms it with his words. He speaks and it is. And it's good. And at, towards the end, we are, we're not just these slaves that come about because it would be handy. Actually, we are his image bearers. We're, we're, we are, as humanity, the answer to God's quest to continue this order, to continue to work it out. So it's a very different kind of ancient story to other ancient stories that were around. And I also think it was a very different kind of modern story. And what I mean by that, mostly when you look at kind of the humanist evolution side of creation, um, Genesis stands out. And here's what I'm going to say. I'm actually not going to stand here and dispute the scientific idea that complex organisms evolved from simple organisms um, and actually the process of natural selection gives us what we have today. I'm not necessarily going to dispute that. Because as someone who's primarily a theologian, not a scientist, I don't really have the knowledge base to do that equally. Science really doesn't have the basis to talk about God. And I'll just leave that with, sit with some of you for a minute. We'll explore that more. But actually... I think the, the modern world for us, science has completely overstepped its bounds and places. And it's not its place to tell us who or who God isn't or is. But what I am disputing, because the Bible does, not just because I think it's a good idea, what I am disputing is the idea that all of creation is just a blind accident that happened in a haphazard manner. I don't think it makes sense to think that everything came from nothing. I don't, I don't think in you could look at it scientifically, philosophically, theologically, I just don't see that making sense. 
And I'm not the only person that's thought this. Fortunately, some much more intelligent people have thought this too. Uh, there's a chap called Francis Collins, who wasn't an atheist, interestingly, became a Christian, but was the lead scientist on the Human Genome Project that unpacked um, the human DNA. He says this, I can't imagine how nature, in the case of the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that, that it has to be outside of nature. The other tricky thing with adopting this kind of humanist, evolutionist outlook sorry, is the end point becomes this kind of weird nihilism where life is meaningless and things are only valuable when we apply value to them and we decide what that is. So it might not lead to superstition, say like the Enuma Elish story we looked at from ancient Babylon, but instead it leads to this relativism where actually it's, it's just up to us to serve ourselves and make things valuable as we see fit. So in the ancient worldview, outside of God, you're an afterthought and a slave. And in the modern worldview, um, you're an accident and do what you like because actually you can't do anything other than serve yourself. The biblical story is actually that we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're partners with God and we trust him for everything. That's a very different kind of ancient story and a very different kind of modern story. And actually, I think as much as it's a different kind of story, it's also answering a whole different bunch of questions than the one we often ask. Because Genesis 1 and 2 is not how. That's not what it's trying to... It's not trying to tell us how it happened. It's trying to tell us why it happened. Genesis is not a scientific document. And in particular, the, the big Genesis 1 and 2 is often thought of as two different things. Sometimes they're thought of as like a prologue to the story. So it's like this kind of summary. Other times it's thought of as a piece of like poetry or an ode at the beginning. So it's not intended to be scientific. It's not intended to give us all the answers to how. Actually, part of our human nature is we are desperate to discover how things happen. We're so inquisitive. And actually, that I, I'm, for one, I believe that's a God-given thing. Actually, it's what makes us succeed, if you like, as a human race. It makes us able to fulfill this idea that God wants us to order the rest of creation with him. So... Why is it important that we acknowledge this? Uh, I think it's this. If you come to the Bible with a bunch of questions to things it's not answering, the only outcome you can have is to take away things it's just not saying because you want it to fit your particular worldview. Does that make sense? That actually if you're looking for answers that aren't there, what you're taking away is at best made up. John Walton is the chap who wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1, says this, if we turn Genesis 1 into an explanation of modern cosmology, we are making the text say something that it never said. It is not just a case of adding meaning. It is a case of changing meaning. And since we view the text as authoritative, that's how we view the Bible, as something that we read that dictates how we live our life. It is a dangerous thing to change the meaning of the text into something it never intended to say. Interestingly, when I was preparing this talk, I just realised actually how passionate I am about some of this stuff. And if I was to tell you why, in the most blunt of terms, it's because I can't help but think that hundreds of thousands of people have walked away from Jesus because of a wrong interpretation of what Genesis 1 is doing and actually our wrong interpretation of Genesis 1 has got between people and Jesus and it never needed to does that make sense, does that seem fair 
and I'm not criticising any particular view on evolution. Well, if you know what I mean, you're the kind of person... I'm the kind of person, if I think about these things, I'm an introvert, and I'll stay awake thinking about some of these things, even though it adds no value to anyone's life, including my own particularly. But the idea that maybe you're a young earth creationist, old earth creationist, theistic evolutionist, secular evolutionist, whatever, actually, whenever we apply things to Scripture that it's not saying, we run the risk of becoming a block to people finding Jesus. And that's a problem. I don't know if you agree with me. And I genuinely think hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of young people may still walk with Jesus if this was something we'd grasped in previous generations. Because actually all that Genesis, literally all that Genesis is saying is this, God created the world as good and humanity in his image to be good partners in ordering and ruling the world faithfully. That's what it literally is not saying anything else. Because actually if you read the book of you read this these chapters in a way that is literarily correct, not just literal, you get to the, this point where you're reading it correctly. A couple of weeks ago, if you and if you don't know what I mean by that, there's a talk a couple of weeks ago that Ken did that you can find on the website. And he talks about the difference between things being literal and literarily correct. And I'd look that up. Because the, the over the over literal approach does something like this where it, it can just create problems. And I understand why people get to it. They get to this point because otherwise you, can, you run the risk of doing this. You go, there was morning and there was evening, the first day. Day? 24 hours? Is it literally 24 hours? A day? Sunrise to sunset? Was it a week? Was it a month? Was it, was it time scales at all? Is it because we now know that time is relative based on where you are in the universe and gravity and blood, things that I'm now just talking, I don't really understand, watch Brian Cox documentaries... <laughs> that actually time isn't a constant, necessarily, as we thought it was. And you you get to that point and you go, well, actually, if if the Bible doesn't mean a day, then how can we trust anything the Bible says? So I understand why people get to that conclusion. But this over-literal approach means that people, actually, they do things like go to university and they get completely ripped apart by other arguments. And it's because the focus is on the wrong things. And this is where reading the Bible for what it is helps. It helps us pick our battles. And I believe some of us, the biggest outcome of this year could be that we learn which battles we need to drop and which battles we need to pick up. I think some of us are banging drums that we just don't need to be. And I also think, interestingly, I think if we grab hold of the Bible, not only because it sounds sounds so common sense, if you read the Bible more, you understand the gospel more. But actually, we'll, we'll understand what it means to share Jesus with people without all these things that we put in the way as well. And it's been interesting for me as a dad. So Elsie's just turned two and a half, and she's suddenly decided that she loves dinosaurs. I haven't particularly done anything to do this. I've endured years of Peppa Pig and Paw Patrol and never put the dinosaur programs on, mostly because I've tried and they're rubbish. Uh, if you watch Netflix, they're all awful. Um, but she suddenly loves dinosaurs. No idea where it's come from. And actually, as a parent, I could be going and trying to go to like the local Christian bookstore and attempt to find some books that just... Okay, no, dinosaurs aren't real. No, not real at all. And actually, this reading of... This understanding of Genesis 1 just gives me a great freedom as a parent to enjoy some of that stuff and actually to keep my focus for her on talking about Jesus, talking about how good creation is, talking about our place in God's story. 
And in, actually, the reality is whether God did it in seven days, 7,000 days, 7 billion years, that's not the point of this book. But it's a, it's a block for so many people. Actually, the point of the book is in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And I think the next thing that Genesis 1 and 2, 2 does, it makes a whole bunch of worldview claims. That is, so our worldview is everything we think and perceive about the world. And interestingly, this is everyone, I think, I'm fairly certain this would be true, everyone who lives, whether they believe in God or not, is asking these, these questions, why? Why are we here? There's a, another intelligent chap, much more intelligent than me, Christopher Wright, a Cambridge PhD and an Old Testament scholar, says this, the creation narrative provides answers for the two most fundamental questions that all philosophies and religions answer in different ways. Where are we and who are we? That is to say that this universe in which we find ourselves, where did it come from? Why does it exist? And is it even real? And then second, what does it mean to be human? Are we gods or are we merely animals that have evolved a bit further than the rest? Does human life have any value, meaning or purpose? And the truth is that Genesis 1 and 2 make some very strong worldview claims. And I think that actually we should be in a position where we, we understand those worldview claims and we understand why we can cling to them and why they make sense. So in brief, this is the worldview claims of Genesis 1 and 2. So God created the world from chaos and ordered it out of darkness. The world he created is very good, full of meaning, potential and beauty. In this world from chaos, he brings a garden. And then something that's quite key that we sometimes miss, and this will get talked about more next week, but actually even in this good creation, there is still darkness, there is still evil, and Genesis seems to make no attempt to tell us where it comes from. So that remains a mystery to us. And that's okay. Can I just say at this point, if things are a mystery at the end of this year, if you come away from the year of biblical literature with more questions than answers, that's all right, because it's a book about a God who is a mystery to us. Actually, we can't understand. The Bible tells us plainly, so don't try and figure it out. But it says, actually, we're beyond... God's ways are beyond human understanding. Who he is is beyond us. So that's okay, to have mystery. And then God looks to keep bringing more order to the world. And how? He does that through humanity, God's image bearers. And we're able to order things for him and keep doing that. And we're tasked with ruling the earth commanded to multiply, to keep ordering, to expand, to spread creative goodness as partners and not as slaves. And then we come to this slightly, it seems slightly odd if you don't understand the narrative. And I've always thought this idea, actually, you know, this idea that God brings Adam before two trees in the garden. So this is Genesis 2, 15 and 17. It's kind of an odd idea because knowing the human race as much as I do, if I gave the human race two options, I could almost guarantee that they'd go for the wrong one. That just seems quite apparent. But narratively, it makes a lot of sense because what, it's, what does giving us these options do? It says this, it, it asks these questions of us. How will we rule the earth? And how will we bring about beauty and goodness? And there's two options. One is to do it, to trust that God knows good and evil well enough and, our, and to acknowledge our human limitations within this partnership. And the other is then to seize autonomy, to hijack the meaning of good and evil for ourselves and make our own opinion the most important. 
I won't talk about that too much more because that is next week's talk. Mm. But it gets interesting. And when you look at all this in context, you suddenly look at it and go, this makes complete sense. This explains so much about the world. So as well as answering different questions than the one we are asking, Genesis 1 and 2, I think, gives us an invitation to a different kind of life. And that's this, just one that is full of trust. You know, God ordered the world first. Do we trust him? And do you trust him to give you what you need? Not necessarily what you want, but what you need. Because actually, if you look at the creation story, he says, here's all this stuff that you need. Here's all the plants. Here's the animals. Here's everything. Here's your job. Here's your vocation. Here's your calling. Here's your purpose. He gives us all that stuff. And do we trust his definition of humanity, or do we need to create our own? Christopher Wright, this is on my, my introverted self had a field day and didn't let me sleep after reading this, uh, this quote. This is the same chap that had the quote earlier, Christopher Wright, this Cambridge PhD. He said this, one day we will stand before God for our humanity as much as, as our Christianity. At that point, my brains went, and I didn't sleep at all. Terrible. But, but I believe that it, it does present us a few ways just to respond today. The first being, if you don't know Jesus, we talked about this meta-narrative, this idea of creation, fall, and redemption, and renewal. And my first point, is always, probably always my first point, is if you want to respond to this and actually say, actually, Jesus, you know what? This makes sense. I want to follow you. Then I'd love to pray with you get other people to pray with you. Um, the other is this invitation to trust his definition of humanity and our role in that partnership and, perhaps, and, and actually trust in his provision. And maybe for some of us, we're just in a place where we recognize there's things that we just need to give back to him and to entrust back to him. And then lastly, it was just that some people here perhaps don't believe that they could be created in God's image. Your, your own self-worth doesn't allow you to have that place as God's image bearer. Um, I would love to pray, well, not me personally, but um, if you want to respond to any of those things, could, would you just raise a hand? We're just going to ask people to pray with you, if that's any of those of you. Say, so you want to respond to Jesus, you need to entrust some things back to him, or you, you're struggling with that idea of self-esteem where you're God's image bearer.